Hello there, my friends. I'm Lynn Scanella, and you're listening to Fruitful Conversations, a place where I enjoy myself immensely chatting to interesting and inspirational people from all around the beautiful Northern Rivers on Bundjalung Country in New South Wales. Today's guest is a cracking good chick. Pauline Mensa is she's the original Aussie battler. Born in the Bondi of old where money was skint and life was tough, Pauline has battled rheumatoid arthritis from an early age and she now also suffers from a rare and terrible autoimmune disease, Pemphigus vulgaris. And yet, against all odds and in a time where girls can't surf, Pauline became world surfing champion in 1993 and winning most of her tournaments that year. She received no prize money, she did get a broken trophy, And along the way, she helped blaze a trail for female surfers everywhere. It's a really uplifting story and one you shouldn't miss. Presenting to you, the one and only Pauline Mensah. Hey, Pauline, it's lovely to have you you on the show. I'm just so delighted that you've um, agreed to have a chat. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Bondi, when you grew up, you know, wasn't, wasn't exactly the hip place that people see it is today, right? Totally. It was called Scum Valley back then. <laughs> and um, it's so different. Like we used to have a sewerage pipe that came out just at South Bondi there and yeah, all the stuff from the streets would come out. And I remember surfing with like tampons and condoms and all <laughs> kinds of gross things floating around in the water. And um, we couldn't believe when they finally fixed it and put it out to sea and just how much cleaner the beach became after that. But um you know, when I was growing up, there was a lot of Kiwis, so it was like the place for all the Kiwis to come and hang out, yeah. and there was also a lot of homeless, so we had quite a few characters, like we had the, the opera singer who used to go down Bondi Road and just sing in the middle of the road. We had another guy we called the pizza licker. He was always getting food <laughs> out of the bins and um, licking any bit of food he could find. It was strange, but anyway... um. Okay, licking pizza tampons and used condoms have mm-hmm. kicked off the show. Thank you, Pauline. <laughs> <laughs> You're a legend. But yeah, it paints a picture of Bondi like it was. It was. It was a uh, yeah. There was poverty and there was violence and you know it just wasn't the same place now that it is now. Yeah, I mean, even growing up too, there was one of my neighbours who was you know just a block away. I remember the one guy, I said to him, where's your brother? Like, I don't see your brother anymore. He said, oh, um, they found him dead. And I sort of like never really thought about it. And then many years later when there was an inquest and stuff, I found out that he was one of the guys, um, you know, there was a lot of gay murders around and he was one of the ones that got murdered at Bondi. Oh, God. And you so see, I grew up it. with that kind of stuff around as well. It's just a lot of hatred towards anyone a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, and uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, there was that horrific spate of homophobic crime. Yeah. Horrific spate. So I guess that that brings me to a question. I know that your great mentor and your fierce competitor and your dear friend um, Jodie Cooper chose to not hide the fact that she was gay while she was a professional athlete. Uh, yeah, she she was happy to be out and proud and, mm. um, you know, I used to watch the way the surfing association was with her and how many times um, things just didn't go her way or the people would say, oh, she's a lesbian, what a waste. And oh, what a waste. Of, what? Yeah. I love that. What a waste. You will never know the pleasure of this great appendage. What a waste. Yeah, exactly. And, um, 
So just seeing all that, that's what made me just not be myself mm. while I was on tour. And So you hid it for a lot of your professional yeah, life? Yeah, I hid it because I felt that, um, well, I knew that if I came out, there was absolutely no chance of getting sponsored because, like, as soon as Jodie's sponsors found out that she was gay, when she was open about it, um, yeah, she got dropped by her sponsors. So, um, yeah, I just realised it was better to keep quiet because I already wasn't getting sponsored in the surf industry. Even when I was the world champion, I still still didn't get sponsored <sighs> except for when it was, like, outside the industry that knew. Like, I was never open publicly, but while I was on tour with the close net of crew around me, I didn't hide it from them because yeah, they were your support they crew. Knew and yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's quite obvious when you're staying with your partner everywhere. And yeah. even if I, I wasn't public about it, they were all talking about it still. Yeah. So why was why was sponsorship so elusive for you, even if people didn't know you were gay? Because I read that you, like for 20 years of, of your professional career, you probably only had sponsorship for around five. Is mm. that right? Yeah, I don't know. Like I guess surfing was so much the um, – it was all about image for the women. Like the guys were getting sponsored if you were a bit quirky or different and didn't matter what you looked like at all, they would sponsor you. But the, the women, they just wanted to have this, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, this whole style. And, um, you know, I was none of that. I was dark, long hair and freckled. And so I feel that, um, you know, like even <clears throat> becoming a world champion, you think, I just kept thinking that they were going to come to me. Like I didn't really look around and then after I won and still no one came, I thought, okay, I better go to a trade show. So I packed my bag full of a whole heap of portfolios and went to Florida, went to this big trade show and I was walking around with my backpack and meeting different companies and I'm like, yeah, I'm Pauline Menzer, I'm the current world champion. And they're like, who? Who are you? (laughs) And then they're like, oh, I thought Lisa Anderson was a world champion. And I'm like, oh, my God, like these people are in the industry, top of the industry, there were some big companies there and they don't even know who won the women's world title. And so it made me just really disheartened and over them. And so I just went back to doing what I know best and that's being a wheeler and dealer. And so from a young age I learned, you know, we started by our pocket money would be to collect cans and, and then when I started competing, I'd bake cakes and sell toffees and stuff like that and the school would have mufty days yeah. and so I survived that way. And then when that happened again on tour, I just went around to a whole lot of local companies in Byron and was able to get enough prizes so everyone gave a prize each that I could have a raffle not thinking that I actually have to sell thousands of raffle tickets to make the money, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so I made money that way. I used to buy loads of things that were cool at the time, like whether it be Levi jeans or a cool bike or stickers or whatever I thought was the cool item, and then I'd bring it with me to the next country and sell it. And so I used to stay with um, – so I was kind of sponsored by my friends around the world. You sure were. Because, um, yeah, what they would do was um, each place I stayed, they would have like, say, 15 friends and they'd say, Pauline's coming to town, she's staying with us, she's got some stuff to sell if you want to come and help her out. And so that's how I became sort of like, 
yeah, sponsored by friends around the world. That's amazing because, you know, you still had the same costs as as everybody else and a lot of the women at that time didn't get sponsorship, but, you know, I know, but they had the same costs as the boys but you had to raise all this money on your own. What was it? Give me like in the, in, I don't know, in the late 80s or 90s, what would it cost to tour for the, the year? So around the world ticket was about 9000 so it was huge money. And That's just the airfare? Yeah. Wow. And so like, for instance, uh, Accommodation was probably about five hundred for the week. The hire car was the same, five hundred, and um, so I'm lucky because I really needed the money to st- survive on tour. I won a lot, mm-hmm. and so I kept winning, and I won twenty major CT tournaments and eight qualifying tournaments, and so. I was right up there with, you know, Andy Irons, Kelly Slater, Pam Burridge, Lisa, just all of them, you know, like a really high winning achiever. And so I basically sponsored myself. And then what happened, the only reason I actually retired, like I really loved what I did and maybe because I struggled, I appreciated it so much. And the only reason I stopped after 20 years was because of my arthritis so I got that bad and the money was going down and down and I didn't have the finances to look after myself properly. So I was in Germany. My body was completely like in um, an attack of arthritis and I was lucky a rheumatologist sponsored me over there and let me see him for free. And then, um, you know, he did some scans and all this kind of stuff and my hip and he said, oh, you really need to get a new hip. And I think just the stress of it all, I ended up, not wanting to stop, but I did stop because of, you know. It was just got too hard. The, the money that I, I, yeah, I had saved. Like I always had, since I was seven actually, I always had this bank account that for me it didn't exist. It was always for my house. So whenever I got anything a little bit extra, it always got put aside. For, since you were seven. Since I was seven. Because my mum used to like just have crap everywhere. The house was always with full of lots of things and with four kids running around, you can imagine. And because it was like that and I wanted to have my, like my own spot that made me want to save from young. And and the way we were brought up too, like um, for instance, say we went, we wanted to go to the Easter show. All year we had to do chores to get that money to go to the Easter show. Mm-hmm. And we also got like a little allowance. I think my brother's got, a dollar, and so there's two sets of twins. Yeah. Um, What's that like growing up with two sets of twins in a house? Crazy. Yeah. So they would get a dollar each and me and my twin brother would get 60 cents each and we would, like, save it, you know, like we became really good savers. Certainly teaches you something else, something deep inside when it's not handed to you on a platter, but, you know, you've had a lot of tests. God, I, I got a whole lot of questions out of that. One is... So I guess the first one is you were you were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when you were just a child and you have suffered with this. You've lived with it your entire life. I don't actually understand how you got through surfing with it. How do you, how did you manage that? I mean you clearly got to a point where that was an, enough was enough, but how did you do that? Is it different when you're on the waves? Um no, it was a really big struggle. Mm. I'm I'm actually really lucky in the sense that I didn't have it all the time. So, like, I still was stiff a lot of the time, but I wasn't in a flare-up all the time. So, for instance, I might get it for two years and then I'll be okay for a year and then I'll be bad for eight months and then 
you know, so it, it went back and forward. But um, when it flared, the struggle was just incredible. Like I couldn't bend my elbows. I mean, I couldn't straighten my elbows. I couldn't bend my wrists. I couldn't walk straight. I don't know. I just had, like, I still can't believe it today. I just had so much determination. So I'd get up at like four o'clock in the morning and have the hottest shower or a bath and and then try and do as many stretches as I, as I could, which was barely moving at all. And then get if the contest had, you know, massage people, I'd get a massage. And then by the time I surfed, like, you know, even when I went for the world title, I was completely hobbling to the water's edge, barely could walk. But as soon as the hooter would go, I'd surf like a woman possessed. Is that right? And then I'd just be crippled walking up the beach again. So just that massive amount of adrenaline and wanting to win would always get me through. For that moment. Like when I went for the world title, I – um. so you imagine, you know, on a surfboard you're holding the rail of the board and you've got your wrists – so it goes backwards. I couldn't do that at all. So here I am in ten foot surf, and I had to use my knuckles and punch the board to get <gasps> to up. Get up. <clears throat> wow! And so you know I had that going on, and um, because I was unwell and I couldn't paddle very strong, I was using a um, a friend's board that was a seven eight, which is gigantic board. And you're not a tall woman. No, and so um, yeah. I mean the board went great, but. You know, I'm using something way bigger than I'm used to, and um, it was scary. Board, is that the board you won on at Sunset yes. Beach? That's extraordinary. Yeah, Pauline. I'm spewing. She sold it. <laughs> <laughs> I did say keep it, but anyway. Oh god, that's that. Yeah, that's just amazing. What did that finally? I, I think 1993 was the year you were on fire, and you won. Was it half of the tournaments that year? Um, I think I, I saw somewhere. I think it was 75 percent. That they they counted, but um, so that was your year. Yeah, so like I actually got unwell. I'd won in Japan, and I got unwell when I was in Japan. And um, the weird thing is, I got like bad belly, gurgly butt guts, and had a bit of um diarrhea. And I think for some reason that would always bring on my arthritis anytime I got a little bit unwell, whether it was anyway that that happened, but that seemed to trigger it. And when I came back to Byron Bay and saw my coach, he was just looking at me and he saw how I was and he's absolutely heartbroken because he's like, there's no way she's going to Hawaii. Like she can barely even move and walk. How is she going to go to Hawaii? And so I still went early and I was there for three weeks. My partner at the time was um, actually putting me in a shopping trolley to go shopping because by the time I did 10 steps, I'd just get worse and worse and worse. So I went to get cortisone and she she wasn't really specific enough and said to me, didn't say, oh, you had to get the exact spot. So she shot me with cortisone. It didn't work. And then I saw another surfer, Hawaiian surfer, Rochelle Ballard, and she said, oh, look, I've got this guy that I know in Kauai. You need to fly over there because he's um he puts your body in time. And I'm like, sounds weird, but I was desperate. So I flew over and – um he did weird things like he'd touch my ankle and my wrist at the same time and somehow trying to put my body clock in time. And while he was doing I'm thinking, oh, rolling my eyes going, oh, this is a load of hogwash. But I was really blown away when I started walking out of the um, the f- place where he d- did it that I was fine, like not fine, sorry, I was like 25% better and I was really blown away that 25% better 
And then um, this whole time as well, I was like on an alkaline diet, so I was trying not to have anything at all that was acidic. So anyway, I was still only at um, I was 75% bad and 25% okay, so – yeah, I went into going for the world title at, at like that, that. that. Like that. How about that guy? Did you use him again? Did you stay in touch? It seems like he should have been on your team. No, no, I didn't because, um, yeah, he was in Kauai and I was around the world. Yeah. No sponsors and there's no way. So in that year, so you won this amazing world championship in, in Hawaii. Just, I mean, an incredible feeling to get there. And that year there was no prize money. So why yeah, was that? So there was prize money at each event, but there was no prize for winning the world title. And so, um, yeah, I was devastated because I thought that you won all this money. Like, you know, the guys were winning money for places and why didn't the women win money? Like I was really blown away. And um, they gave me this trophy and I thought that the base was just always never screwed on properly. So – I just had it on my shelf and every time people wanted to look at it, I'm like, no, don't move it because it's loose. And one day I thought, oh, I should tighten that. And then when I went to tighten it, I realised it was broken. In all these years I've had a broken broken trophy. trophy. Yeah, well, you're only world champion. But why was there no prize money? Like was it – I mean, I'll talk about the inequality in the prize money in a moment, but – there there had been prize money. It was just a norm back then. It was so normal for us to get shafted all the time. Like that was only one part of so many things that happened. Tell me, tell me about how women were treated. Um, like a perfect example was I remember being in California and I just got second in the event. Um, everyone thinks I should have won. I was against Lisa Anderson and that bit, name keeps coming up. Yeah, I was a bit bummed about that. Oh, Lisa Anderson also was married to the head judge, which um shouldn't have, shouldn't happen in our sport no. and it was again I really fought to make sure that he wasn't at the least not judging her heats or the women's heats you would so, think that would just be normal but still he-, he was still the head judge and even though he wasn't judging the women he's still their bosses mm. so you know there was things like that and um what, what else about the the um inequality of prize money um, oh, that was ridiculous. Like, you know, you'd see the guys holding these checks for like, I don't know, sixty or seventy thousand dollars and we would win eight. And um That's a massive difference. Yeah, and they just always say, Oh, there's no sponsors, no you know, the, no one wants to sponsor you, no one wants to do this. And we kept saying again and again and again and again, if you make women's clothes, women will buy it. And as a kid, I, I worked in a surf shop mm-hmm. and I saw who was buying all the stuff. It was always the girlfriends. So I knew that it would sell and they just did not listen. They just And then, you know, even when I did finally get sponsored, I'm like, could you make some girls' clothes? Get sick of wearing boys' clothes. And people used to say, oh, you know, you look like such a um, tomboy growing up. I'm like, well, we didn't have any girls' clothes. We always had to wear men's clothes. Just everything we had to fight for, you know, like just any changes. And for people who haven't seen the movie Girls Can't Surf, uh, another example is we used to go out to compete and like the men were on and then the wind would come up and the surf would be too high tide or or not breaking at all anymore and they go, okay, send the women out. Mm. And then right when the women are about to paddle out, they go, okay, let's do the beauty pageant or mm. let's do the um, swimsuit pageant. So then everybody who's no at the beach at the turns waves. around and watches the women and then they, then they say, oh, no one watches the women. <laughs> 
It's like, yeah, because you put on different entertainment right when, when they're on. And you put us out in bad conditions. In terrible conditions. And so it was really a groveling tour. Like we were following just these crappy beach breaks in busy places that were just like the most famous beaches, but the waves were terrible and then would get thrown out when it was high tide or, or too small. So a couple of times I was at a few different events. We tried to make a stand and not paddle out. And then someone would be sponsored by the event, so they had to paddle out. Mm. And then once one goes, you had to go, mm. or otherwise you're just forfeiting your your, your place. And but, then finally in South Africa, yeah. nobody went out. And that then, was you, right? I read that yeah. that was you. That you they went, come on, you've got to go in, and so you sort of all got ready. You go down to the water's edge, just so just, and then you just, just stay just went, here. Don't go in. Yep, yeah, just stay here. Don't get, don't paddle out. And you know, I was shitting myself because anytime we did things that were like against what we're supposed to be doing, um, you can get fined. Of course. And so yeah. most of the time the, the fines were around a thousand dollars, which I think at our last position was nine hundred, so it was a big fine. And um we did it. We didn't paddle out. The judge didn't go off at us. They didn't say, Oh, you shouldn't have done that. We didn't get fined. And so after that, that's when we decided to have a representative go forward and speak on behalf of us. So like, for instance, at the if the next event was on, we had one person that they had to go and talk to and they'd already come and talk to us saying, do you girls want to go out? And if everyone says no, they go, we're not going out. And so you had to do basically majority. So that was a turning point, 1999. Yeah. Still took a long time. But then <clears throat> was that sort of the real start of the fight back then? Yeah, and, you know, they started thinking that we are being – rebellious and it's like we're not being rebellious we're just trying to fight for what we deserve we deserve equality and it still took a long time you know I'm sure that not every woman's getting sponsored now when when did you start surfing um professionally um professionally I won the world amateur title in 1988 and then I turned professional just after that and I was on tour for over 20 years okay so in 2019 the surfing world says we're going to give equal prize money to women. So that's taken 40-odd years. Yeah, it was crazy. I remember I was um, driving the car and I was actually in one of my favourite places in Ocean Shores. As you go over this one road, there's just this gorgeous mountain view and I just always love it every time I drive that way. And they announced that women are getting equal prize money and I just like screamed and cried and – just couldn't believe it. And so it was quite magical to hear that in one of my favourite places. And then I watched Caroline Marks, who's, you know, just a new up-and-coming young young lady, and she was the first woman to win equal prize money. And, again, I cried because I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe she just won $100,000 in one event. My whole career, 20 years on tour – I won 350000 and out of the 350000 I probably spent 320000 on travelling costs. Yeah. So basically for 20 years on tour, I didn't earn any money, but um, I wheeled and dealed my savings otherwise. Well, you blazed a trail is what you did. You know, that's, that, that's your gift. Um, and I guess the other thing is clearly you loved what you were doing, so you still – to do that, you still got to be surfing. Absolutely, in the ocean and yeah. Like I worked it out. I'm like, oh, if I was if I was a checkout chick, 
like they say back in the eighties, <laughs> I would um, I would earn the same money, but I got to see the world. Yeah, and so I really, really loved what I did, and um, I wasn't in it for the money. I was just in it. I actually really loved showing off. Like I just always wanted to surf well in front of people, and especially guys like that. Back then, they always say, "Oh, well, you surf good for a girl." And they're like, how long have you been surfing? And I'd look at my watch and go, oh, about an hour and a half. <laughs> nice. And I used to do that all the time, just being yeah. quite cheeky. Nice, nice. Um, what about you? You mentioned um, some of the up-and-coming young surfers now. What challenges do, do female surfers face now if they're getting equal pay, they're being treated better, they get better conditions to surf under? Do they face any chal- any challenges now? Um, you know, they're still – there's still like not everyone's getting taken care of. There's still a few getting left behind, but the amount since they announced equal pay, the amount that the younger generation has changed is absolutely incredible. So for instance, um, you know, there's this Erin Brooke and um, Sierra Kerr. They're like the new young, young generation. And that those two, ones lives in America and Australia. Her dad was a professional surfer. And he was really known for doing aerials. And so she's amazing at aerials now. And so he's put a lot of time and effort into her and she's surfing as strong as the guys, just absolutely amazing. And same with Erin, she's just doing incredible stuff. She, I think she got third in an event barrel riding against the guys. And so, you know, stuff like that's happening now because that time and effort has been put into the women. And so – um, I think it's a really exciting time because finally to see them get spoiled as much as the guys have been spoiled and where their surfing's coming, it's just so fantastic to see. It must be amazing, amazing yeah. to watch. And I, I never dreamt that women would be doing, um, like they're doing aerial 360s. I never thought that they'd be up, get up to that stage and they are. And I'm yeah. just like that just shows you like our dream, our um, – you know, what we push for, what we believed in, we realised it can come true. And so um, it's so true if you can't see it, you can't be it. Sure is. And so now I like to tell my story as well because just to show where we came from and what can happen. And um, that's actually one thing I wanted to mention today is we've been really pushing to get a statue at Bondi Beach. So we're, we're trying to get um, – there's a GoFundMe called Pauline in Bronze. So we're trying to get the community to help raise the money because if the council do it, it'll probably take a long time. Yeah, sure. You know, if, and this is at Bondi because that's where yeah. I grew up. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to do that to pay for a statue, to have a statue of me at Bondi. So those new generation, yeah. if they – they can see it. They yeah. can be it. And so as the starting point, they did a mural at Bondi and like the first day a little little girl stopped in front of it and read it, um, Pauline Menza, world champion, and she went, that's what I want to be. Oh. I want to be a world champion. And then I'm like, that statue needs to happen. And, you know, the people were talking about a plaque. It's like kids don't look at plaques. Statues are Do they see idea. this young girl surfing, like do it when I was a child. Yeah. 
on a wave, I, th- I think that's a great way to inspire a new generation. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'll make sure we put that in the show notes. So GoFundMe page and it's Pauline in bronze. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot changed. Um, I guess it's funny, you know, in later years you started getting recognition. Like in 2018 you are inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's, you know, maybe a little overdue, but that must have been incredible. You've got the mural happening, you've got a surfboard named after you now. Is it? Is that right, the equaliser? Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, I feel like I've won the world title now <laughs> because I didn't get, you know, barely any recognition back then and it just feels amazing. You know, I've battled a lot of health issues and over the last three years I got diagnosed with um, a very rare autoimmune called Pimphigus vulgaris and it's basically – a blistering autoimmune disease and so my body thinks it's getting burnt and then I start getting blisters all over me and it's absolutely agonising pain and the only way to treat it is by suppressing your immune system. So I was on steroids for a few years and then now I'm taking a, um, it's called rituximab and that completely suppresses my B cells and so I'm basically staying fit and healthy from having half an immune system but, um, yeah, it's been a battle. Yeah, I mean, you embody determination and, and resilience, really, uh, and it's you've been doing this from an early age. From an early age. In your, uh, you, might, you can correct me on this because I'm, I read conflicting reports about your dad and your grandfather um, dying when you were five under unexplained circumstances. My grandfather was uh, on the milk run. And um, he got hit and run there and then only, I'm not sure exactly the time frame, but within the year um, my father was killed doing his taxi run. Like They found him dead in the taxi and then my godfather had said that at that time the mafia wanted to buy buy the milk run. It was worth a lot of money because they didn't want to sell and and then my mum's like, that's not true. Like your grandmother, your grandfather just crossed the road really dangerously and your dad I mean, he was still killed. They, they reckon taxi. it was suicide or something, but his money wasn't gone. So it's still really all unknown what, wow. what really happened. But anyway, despite whether, whether they were murdered or not or, or however, it was still um, a big thing to go through to lo- lose your grandfather and then your father. And Your mother must have been amazing too. So she's left with four young children, two, like two sets of twins, um, two five-year-olds and two eight-year-olds. Yeah, right. She must have. What, what are your memories of her um, in that time, like as in from your childhood? Lot, lots of resilience. Yeah. Like she, um, I, I remember saying to her one day, Mum, like, why are you making pizzas with rice on them? And she said, oh, to make it go further. And I said, what do you mean? She says, oh, well, there's four of you and, like, if I put a bit of rice on the pizza, then you won't want two slices or three slices. <laughs> So she was always doing stuff like that and to make her life easier, she brought us up at the beach. So she would um, just get us to catch the bus straight down to Bronte Beach and she would have our dinner there ready. And then I asked her also why she used to do that and she said so there was nowhere near as much mess. Smart woman. Yeah. And so she did things like that all the time. She said even when we were young, if we did a wee in our nappy, she would just turn it the other way. And she wouldn't wash them till we did poos because she said that she was wash, washing at one stage four kids' nappies. And um, okay, so I think we've we've d- 
determined where that resilience and <laughs> the innovative um, ideas come from and the strength. Yeah, a lot of, and you a know, lot of that has come from your mum and the way that you've been brought up. Yeah, I looked up to her too because, you know, I looked after her for um, the last couple of years of her life and she blew me away. Like she had Parkinson's really bad and then, um, you know, I'd go out and do my – I became a school bus driver because I was helping my mum in between shifts mm-hmm. and um, she blew me away. I'd come home and she's like, cut this pumpkin up. I'm like, how did you cut that pumpkin up? Like, you know, she's shaking and quite a weak. Pu- and, like a pumpkin. Yeah, That's a proper pumpkin. Yeah. So she started doing this thing of um, she'd get like this plastic um, mallet, 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 yeah, yeah, mallet, mallet yeah. and um, a knife and then do that, do, chop her food up with that and then that became like – totally her of still trying to make her own dinner. Great. And um, one day she made me really laugh. She's like, I want to make this thing to put all my, my phone and my torch and everything next to my bed because, you know, with Parkinson's you freeze and I want my remote control on it and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, can you go to the tip shop and get me like an old lamp post, like, you know, f- for bed lamp? Yeah. So I bring her back and – an old post and then she gets a big old chopping board and she might like cut a big circle with this chopping board attached to the lamp post to it, put hooks at the top of it. She did this? She did this while she's got Parkinson's. She had to even use the jigsaw to cut out the um, – Oh, give me a break. You're kidding. Yeah. And then like I come home and she's made this thing to put next to her bed to make her life easier. So she even learnt um, like Nintendo games and all that, PlayStation, all that kind of stuff. And so she was really quite self-sufficient. She um, she was really quite self-sufficient. She'd have like, you know, everything around her and she could turn the TV on and off, the lights on and off with all these remote controls that she had near the bed. Sounds like you've got some great memories of her. Yeah, I do. Yeah. That's that's the nice thing to, to be able to have those memories even at the end when, you know, things aren't perfect you make the most of it. Yeah. It, it did take a while when, because she did get very, very unwell at the end. It did take a while to start having the nice memories. So it was still, you know, a couple of years of um, traumatised by everything that she went through yeah. because she ended up breaking her arm and then the par- Parkinson's medicine didn't work and she ended up bedridden and the new Parkinson's medicine they gave it made her completely um, do la la. And so her ending, her demise was not 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 a nice way to go. <laughs> it's not nice to hear. Mm. Yeah, it does take a while to try and remember the good the good bits and the yeah. times you had with her. And I think looking looking after a parent as hard as it is in the end is um is quite a privilege, you know, to be able to do that, especially considering like what she gave you, what yeah. she gave you that it, that uh, this amazing inner strength. Now you you said. We were talking before about the prize money. I just want to go back to that because you did eventually get some prize money, right? So how did that come about? Yeah, so when the Girls Can't Surf movie came out, a lady called Sophie Marshall, she um, she was working at Rip Curl at the time and she decided to come talk to a few other women, one of them, Brooke Farris, who's now the CEO of Rip Curl, and they got together and said, let's do a GoFundMe for Pauline because it's just ridiculous that she didn't get it anything back then. So we chatted and then she, they said, are you okay to do that? And I said, oh, well, it would be nice. Like, you know, it would be nice to get what I deserved back then. So she said, well, what do you think it would be worth plus, you know, um, interest now? And I'm like, I don't know, about 25000 say. 
So she said, okay. And so she did the GoFundMe. And the first day it was a bit slow. And the second day it just went absolutely mad. And it went to like, I think it was 24 hours, it went up to 25,000. And so me and Sophie had a discussion that what went over the 25,000 that would give it to charity. And we made that clear on yes. on the um, page and it just went kept, off. Kept like, pouring in. Kept pouring in, kept pouring in. It went up to $60,000. And so I felt really good to be able to help, you know, a fellow sufferer of the disease I've got. He's from the Philippines, him. He's got his wife and five five daughters. And um, so I was able to give him some money because he couldn't work for a whole year. He didn't have the medicines I have and I know how – painful it is so he was able to get some medicines he actually even bought a um a, like a big tuk-tuk so he can still work and he named it Pauline Mensah <laughs> <laughs> so the disabled surfing association and also an autoimmune charity were the other recipients of the the rest of the money mm. so it felt good like I didn't really feel like I was giving my money away because it was I never saw it so um yeah, but it seems it feels, extraordinarily fair of you to have done yeah, that and, and generous. I'm, I'm very community-minded. Like I just think if everyone was a little bit more community-minded, I'm trying to inspire people to change and be that way because society has become very selfish and it's me, 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 me. Mm. Whereas if people see other people giving, then hopefully that will inspire them to do more things like that. Because really, like, you know, a perfect example is unfortunately we had a horrible disaster up here, which we all know about, and that's the floods. But it was the first time that I felt this magical community feeling like properly. And I was like, wow, this is so nice. Like, why can't people just keep doing this? Why Why couldn't we feel like that all the time? Yeah, like, Mm. you know, and there's people who were doing it like they felt the joy, which, you know, that's how I feel like. I really feel such joy doing it. And there's other people that just want – to tell everybody else that they've done it. But I always find it's the people that have the least or have struggled the hardest perhaps like you that give the most. Yeah, and you look at homeless people. If you said, mate, I'm really hungry, if you got spare $5 or something, they'll give it to you. Yeah. We just Um, need to inspire people in different ways. Well, you've done it in so many ways, Pauline. Like I came in. I hadn't watched the movie and I will say to everyone who hasn't seen Girls Can't Surf, I'll put the notes in the show notes, but you've, you've, you've got to watch it. It is a truly inspirational movie and it opens up all this stuff. You know, there's no woman of my vintage listening to this or watching that movie that isn't reminded of the inequality that we have all faced in every industry in the workplace, you know. So you weren't, you're not just an in, inspiration in the surfing world. It's an inspiration to, to women everywhere who are still, many of whom are still not getting equal pay. Yeah, and it's, it's good to point out to the new generation too. Like mm. um, I think it was only the second showing you get, we had Q&As after each show and this one little seven-year-old kid up the back said, um, why were they so mean to you? <laughs> and I'm like, mm. how awesome is that? Like these kids back then just would think it's normal, but now they're like, wow, that's so, they're so mean to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But 30 year olds go, what? How? I don't understand. How could you possibly not be equal? So fortunately, the generations that have come under us are being taught differently. Yeah. But, you know, so you sort of, you can see you're inspiring kids. I love the idea of the, of the, of the bronze statue. Um, and yeah. that was also, um, you know, you were talking before about doing a surfboard. 
So the surfboard warehouse approached me and asked me if I wanted to do a Pauline Menza board and I yeah. can name it myself and blah, blah. So I decided that I really like all the Australian women's clubs. So I decided to get this three women's surf clubs, Central Coast, Bondi and, and Byron area. And they all, I said, oh, you'll win a surfboard if you can name it. And so this 14-year-old girl, Marley from Bondi, said, oh, I think you should call it the equaliser because you tried to equalise women's surfing. And I also have autoimmune and I'm bisexual and I can relate to you. And so for me, I was like, wow, how cool is that? Like that is just the best name and I like where it's come from. And then she said at the end of her little um, email, she said, um, if I win one of those boards, I'm going to get magical powers. Pauline, that's amazing. I think you, you, you're a, a champion in in more ways than one. Thank you for paving the way, and thank you for continuing to inspire us. You're welcome. That is one determined woman. How disheartened and frustrated it must have been to have bad waves, very little prize money, no sponsors, and people telling her that girls couldn't surf. I can't imagine. The sheer drive to keep jumping up and fighting alone is inspiring and to do it with ill health even more so. Her ingenuity to raise funds over and over reminds me that we never have to take no for an answer. But what jumps out at me more than anything is Pauline's big heart, her generosity, her desire to help and inspire others. The day I visited, she was loaning out disability equipment to those in need for no fee and doing up an old caravan to make it habitable for a flood victim. Hey, go watch the film. You don't even have to like surfing to get a lot from Girls Can't Surf by Christopher Nelius. Um, It's on Stan, I think, and also Apple TV and pretty sure Prime. I really loved it. It's an honest and confronting look at this incredible band of brave renegade women. And don't forget, if you'd like to see Pauline in bronze, head over to support the GoFundMe page of the same name. If you'd like to know more about me and the work that I do, bounce on over to linscanella.com.au and read about how apples and bananas can help you in the workplace. Yes, this is a real job. My heartfelt thanks to you for your company today. Thanks for listening in and supporting the podcast as always. Until next time, be kind to each other. I'm Lynn Scanella. And this has been Fruitful Conversations. 